Well, what's good, Rocky Peak? It is so good to be with you during for our online weekend services. And if you're joining us for the very first time, special welcome to you. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Dre. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Rocky Peak, and I'm excited to be able to jump in and continue our series called Signs. And so as Johnny invited you to, I hope you got your note sheet. Definitely hope you've got a Bible handy, maybe a journal, and of course, your favorite beverage, Rocky Peak. I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump right in. Father, we are here as your church, and maybe we're not physically in this building, but wherever it is, we are gathered, whether at a home, whether in a park, in a car, whether in an outdoor patio at Starbucks or another restaurant, we are there as your church because we have come for the same purpose, to open up your word, to hear your voice, and to experience the transformation that comes from it. And so, Father, as we go into this time, we go in expecting you as the King of Kings to speak to us, to leave us, to not leave us as we were when we started, but to completely transform us so that we resemble you more. And so, Jesus, as I often pray when I get to lead these times of teaching, I pray the beautiful words of John the Baptist that I, as the communicator, would become less, and that you are King Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, would you become much, much more, not just in our eyes, but in our hearts. And it's in your name, King Jesus, that wherever we're at, we all say together, amen. Well, Rocky Peak, this weekend, I have the honor to continue the series we've been in for a little bit over a month now called Signs, the Path to Life. And the series is an in-depth look at the life and teaching of Jesus as seen and experienced through the eyes of one of Jesus' closest followers and friends, a man known as the Apostle John. Now, John is writing as an older man, and he's inviting us to go on a journey with him through his gospel as he recounts his experiences with Jesus. And in this journey, he's going to help us understand who Jesus is, why Jesus came, and what is the path that leads to life in our individual lives. And so far in this series, we've seen that John has opened up with this amazing claim that Jesus is not simply a good teacher, but Jesus is the promised Messiah. And he's going to continue to write his gospel to prove that claim. And so if you picture this courtroom as we've been doing in this series, he has called certain witnesses to testify of how they came to believe that Jesus is Messiah. We've seen or heard testimony testimony, rather, from John the Baptist. Last week, Michael led us as we saw that in the first disciples that were called. And so as we continue in our series this weekend, we're going to see that in addition to their testimony, John is now going to begin to highlight the seven miraculous signs that Jesus will perform over the next several chapters that reveal his identity and purpose as Messiah. And so this weekend, we're going to be covering the very first sign, and we're going to dive right into it. So if you follow Following along in your note sheet, you've got a section titled The Wedding at Cana. Grab your Bibles, open them up, turn them on. We're going to be going to John's Gospel, chapter 2. John's Gospel, chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And again, as I often say, it's me, Rocky Peak, so I hope you're ready to write things down. Hope you're ready to highlight because there's going to be a lot to mark up. 
Starting at verse 1, on the third day, so this is likely three days after the last recorded event where Jesus' first disciples began to follow him, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. So we're in a very small village about nine miles north of Nazareth where Jesus was from. Verse 2, excuse me, Cana at Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And then verse 2, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, this is just like a quick note, but let me ask you something. When you picture Jesus, do you picture Jesus as someone who would attend a party or a celebration? And I think just even in that small note, it kind of expands our view of Jesus, doesn't it? That John is presenting Jesus being at the celebration as a completely normal thing. So let's continue in verse three. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Would you underline that phrase? They have no more wine. And so that's our central problem. But what I want to do, Rocky Peak, is I want to park the car, so to speak, here on this verse, because there's actually a lot there to unpack. Now, as soon as we got there, I'm sure that for many of you, you immediately figured out where this is going. This is the miracle where Jesus turns water into wine. In fact, if you think about it, this sign in and of itself is one of the most familiar and famous pieces of scripture. Even if you're outside the church or if you haven't been walking with Jesus for long, you have likely heard of this act of Jesus. And because it's so well known, sometimes there can be an unintentional desire. Sometimes what can happen unintentionally is that we minimize it. Yeah, that's when Jesus turned water into wine. That was a pretty awesome party trick. Now let's move on. Let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to the healings. Let's get to the, when Jesus pulls demons out of people. Let's get the resurrections. And so we need to stop as we go into this and we need to remember what John's focus is. That each of these signs is a significant act that reveals truth, again, about who Jesus is and what his purpose is as Messiah. See, I love how it's put there in your note sheet by D.A. Carson. Jesus' miracles, these signs, are never simply naked displays of power, still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. And so now that we've established a little bit of vision and the opportunity to see this with a fresh heart, we need to understand why not having wine was actually a significant problem. This is not simply a minor inconvenience, but to understand why this is such a deep problem, we need to briefly unpack a little bit of cultural context behind first century Middle Eastern weddings. And so one of the most important things to understanding this sign is that we don't picture or understand this as an American or Western wedding. And so if we go back to the culture of the time, weddings were often considered the chief celebrations for an entire village or an entire community. Nobody turned down an invitation to a wedding. And these weddings required elaborate preparation and they could last as long as one entire week. Now, as I say that, there are some of you out there, like my wife, who would go a week of a celebration, yes, 
And there's others that you hear me say that, and like me, you're exhausted just at the thought, right? But what was beautiful about this is that these wedding celebrations carried a lot of spiritual meaning to many of the Jewish people. Because for many of the Jewish people, when they reflected on what, it, what the arrival of the promised Messiah would be like, often a key image or a metaphor that they would use or think of was a wedding banquet or a wedding celebration. Because like a wedding, the coming of Messiah represented a brand new beginning. Now with that being said, there were certain customs and expectations that were, that were considered appropriate to follow. And if they were not followed, such as this, running out of wine for your guests would be considered a significant breach of customs or expectations. Like I said, this wasn't simply an inconvenience, but this meant significant dishonor for a couple. In fact, this was so significant that the groom who was responsible for all this, he could be open to legal ramifications. In other words, he could be sued for breaching this protocol. And so what we're not told is why Mary intervenes. Whether she had a relationship with this couple or one of the members, whether she was just that good-hearted, which likely she was. But, neither, but either way, she approaches Jesus to help. And again, that tells us something about their relationship. See, at this point, it's likely that Mary is a widow. We don't hear about Joseph any further beyond the birth story, really. And this would be a common expectation or dynamic that the widow, that a widow would come to rely on or depend on her eldest son, which is what Jesus is. So let's go back to verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Verse 4, woman... Why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Would you underline that last phrase? My hour has not yet come. So there's an immediate question that comes up here. Is Jesus being dismissive? Or is Jesus being mean to Mary in the way that he responds to her? And if you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable right now, that's okay. Kind of as a quick sidebar, it's okay to wrestle with scripture, especially at times when it maybe makes us think, wait, what's going on here? When it comes to learning how to best study and understand scripture, wrestling is actually a key part of it. And so how do we solve these issues? Well, one of the clearest ways is to dive into, again, the context. That's a big reason why we teach the way we do here at Rocky Peak. And one big picture thing to remember about context is that scripture is for us. But scripture's original audience was a very different culture, almost a very different world, if you will, and also written in a very different language. And so the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And so Jesus referring to Mary as woman in English can sound very aggressive and even offensive. But when we look at the Greek, what we see is that it's not aggressive at all. In fact, this word is actually formal and courteous. It's not exactly the same, but a way to think of it would be to refer to someone in English as miss or ma'am. It's a title that Jesus uses again with Mary later on in the gospel in moments of tenderness as well as to other women that he encounters. But one thing of note 
is this is still unusual. To refer to his mom as ma'am or miss makes you ask the question, why doesn't he just call her mother? And what we see through this sign is that Jesus is redefining how Mary is now to see him. And this redefinition that Jesus is doing is not just for Mary's sake, but it's for ours as well. See, Jesus, and I had you underline, said that my hour has not yet come. See, as Jesus uses this word, what he's referring to, he's referring to the future. Specifically, he's referring to his resurrection when he has conquered sin, the grave, the enemy, when he is taken back into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father, when he is coronated officially as King Jesus. He's saying that time has not come. But what John is telling us through this first sign is that the journey to that time, the journey to that hour is beginning right now. And the beginning of that journey is going to require of Mary and is going to require of us a new sight. It's going to require us to see Jesus as more. In other words, Jesus tells his mother, it is time for you to see me as more, as not simply your son, but as the Messiah who has come to bring the kingdom of God. And as we continue to verse five, look at Mary's response. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Again, do whatever he tells you. Would you underline or highlight that entire verse? I feel like for our time today, that captures the heart and the foundation of what we're going to be building on. Would you put a box around it, arrows, happy faces, a post-it note, whatever you need to continue to draw your attention to it. Because what does Mary beautifully model for us? Responding with trust. Mary is an incredible leader and model to us. You don't need to have a massive amount of quantity written about you in scripture to model how to follow Jesus well. You just had to have made the right choices and we see that in Mary. Her response is trust. She is choosing to trust not in her son, but she is choosing to trust in the Messiah. Because what's amazing about this is that Jesus doesn't give her a how he is going to heal the situation. In fact, Jesus doesn't even give her an if he's gonna do something. Instead, she chooses to trust the who that Jesus is, and she chooses to do so on his terms. And so again, this is a model for us to follow. So as we continue in verse six, Jesus does choose to intervene. Verse six, nearby stood six stone water jars. Would you underline that? Six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Verse seven, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet would be an equivalent of a chief waiter or the chief caterer for the function or wherever they were at. So 
what's happening here is actually pretty significant. And the significance has everything to do with these stone jars, or rather these stone vessels. Because by choosing to do his sign through stone vessels, Jesus is making an intentional declaration of his identity as Messiah and the purpose of Messiah. And so to understand that, we need to understand a little bit. I'm just scratching the surface of Jewish purification rituals. Now, it was believed that a person became symbolically unclean by touching the objects of everyday life. And so in many settings in life, particularly at a function like this, what was expected is that there would be servants to pour water out over your hands before the meal and after the meal to cleanse them of any sinful influences that were associated with anything that they had touched. And the symbolism in that was of sin being washed away. And if you think of big picture belief of the Messiah, it was expected the Messiah would come to fully cleanse us of our sins. And so the fact that Jesus is doing this not in wineskins, but in these tools of purification is a loud declaration that purification, that our cleansing, our forgiveness of our sins is now going to be accomplished through the life and work of Jesus the Messiah. See, these jars represented how they had been done up to this point. And now Jesus is using them to begin something new. And so as he changes water into wine... They take it to the master of the banquet. In verse 9, And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, and after the guests had, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now, would you underline that? But you have saved the best till now. And so again, understand what's going on here. This was a man that knew wine in a culture that knows wine. And I'm not saying that in a negative or derogatory sense. And this master of the banquet is going, this is the greatest wine I have ever tasted And he's confused because this is going against the norm. This is going against how it had been done or what he would do if he were asked for his opinion. This does not make sense. Why would you save your best for last? And what we see here in this first sign is the beginning of something we're going to see all throughout John's gospel and frankly all throughout all four gospels is that Jesus is choosing to act in an unexpected way, in a way that was not considered normal in a way that didn't even make sense. But what we see is that when Jesus acts on his terms, he accomplishes something much, much bigger and he accomplishes it in abundance. He likely made over 120 gallons of the greatest wine they had ever tasted. And then as we close out our passage, as we go to verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs, and so a preview of events to come, through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Would you underline that? Believed in him. 
After this, after this, he went down to Capernaum or Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. And so again, John is reminding us that this first sign reveals a new beginning, that the time has come for us to see Jesus as Messiah and to see that as Messiah, Jesus has brought with him the power and the authority to transform lives. And amen to that. And so as we close our time in our passage again, I'm just so thankful for God's word. And Rocky Peak, I'm thankful that we get to open it up and learn alongside one another. And in the time that I have left, what I want to do is I want to unpack two truths about Jesus that are revealed through this first sign. And so again, there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled A New Beginning. And your first fill-in is this, Jesus the Messiah, because that's who he is. Jesus the Messiah leads us into a new reality. Jesus the Messiah leads us into a new reality. And that reality is called the kingdom of God. Jesus has come, Messiah has come to lead us into the kingdom of God and to lead us into the kingdom of God so that our experience with the kingdom of God is not meant to be a momentary one, but for the kingdom of God to now define every aspect of our lives. In fact, for the kingdom to now define our very eternity. And what we see through this first sign is that the kingdom of God will be experienced by Jesus restoring in us what sin had destroyed and taken away from us, and that's life. The kingdom of God is going to be experienced by Jesus restoring in us what sin had destroyed and taken away from us, and that's life. This first sign begins with Jesus now taking the role of who purifies us because his purification is the Messiah breathing new life into us through his forgiveness, through his transformation. There in your note sheet, I love how the Apostle Paul puts it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. And it can only be new because Jesus the Messiah breathes that new life into us. So again, the heart, one of the hearts of this first sign is that this is a new beginning as Jesus now leads us into a brand new reality. And it begins with purification because the kingdom, this new reality, begins in our hearts. We often want the external to change and that's a good desire and hope but the truth of Jesus is that the external is not going to change until our hearts do first. And so in other words, Jesus has created a new reality and it require us, requires us to be a new person to then be able to inhabit this new reality, the kingdom of God. And so that leads me directly to the second fill-in. Jesus's new reality requires a person marked by surrender. Jesus's new reality requires a person, or in other words, a heart that is marked by surrender. 
And so again, the kingdom requires us to be completely changed at our core. And this is gonna be a key theme throughout John's gospel. In fact, famously, when we get to chapter three, this is what Jesus means when he says that to experience the kingdom of God, we need to become born again. And so to understand what it means to be born again, I think the word surrender is absolutely key. But as we look at that word, we got to be honest, don't we, Rocky Peak? The word surrender is not a word we necessarily like, is it? The word surrender is not a word that we naturally have a positive or a high view of. And if we're really honest, the word surrender actually makes us uncomfortable. And as I examine that in my own life, it's because I'm uncomfortable because of what the word surrender often represents. I think of someone waving a white flag. It represents failure. It represents being powerless. It represents loss. It represents defeat. And again, if I continue to be honest with you, surrender doesn't make sense to me as being the means through which we experience a fulfilled or a successful life. And so again, what we're shown, what the model presented to us in this first sign is that Jesus needs to be allowed to define his terms. Jesus is asking us to have a new and a bigger understanding of what it means to surrender our hearts to the Messiah. And so to understand surrender, I want to give it a simple definition, and that's this. To surrender means to declare that Jesus is Messiah and I am not. Jesus is Messiah, and I am not. And if you're familiar with me as a teacher, you know that that's how I define humility as well. And this declaration, it's deeper than just words, because saying the words is the easy part. But this is a declaration our heart the control center of who we are makes. This is the declaration that chooses to listen and follow to the leadership of King Jesus in our lives. And the truth of the matter is surrender is a journey. If you remember about two messages ago, Michael had made that core point that following Jesus is a journey and it's a lifelong one. It's a journey with ups and downs and everything in between. And surrender is no different as it's a key part of that journey. There are honestly going to be times in our lives in which surrender is exciting and we're, we're motivated to do so. It almost seems easy. There are going to be many times in our life when surrendering is not only difficult, but it might be the most difficult thing we have ever been asked to do. But regardless of what it is we're facing, surrender is also deeply, deeply beautiful. And so what I want to do is I want to take this idea of what does it mean to surrender your hearts and break it down into two practical truths that really come from this passage. So there in your note sheet, we need to surrender in how we, the first villain, see the Messiah. The first area our hearts need to surrender in is in how we see the Messiah. And what I mean by that is in how we understand the character of who Jesus is and how do we understand his purpose, how we understand his behavior, how we understand his will. And to surrender how we see Jesus means that Jesus defines how we are to see him, not us. 
And if I use common language that we use a lot at Rocky Peak, that means that we need to surrender the filters that we often place on Jesus. We define that as that filters are ways that many times unintentionally we place and they tend to distort how we view Jesus. And these filters come from a variety of different places. They can come from our upbringing. They can come from our culture. They can come from our hurts. They can come from our religious experiences. But the reality is that, uh, that a filter is dangerous because even a slight variation in how we see Jesus can distort our understanding of who he is and what it means to follow him. And if you don't think that a slight variation is that dangerous, think about when you're driving your car. And I appreciate Neil Johnson for giving me this metaphor. It only takes a little bit of your steering wheel being off to run you off the road. And so we need Jesus to define how we are to see him, much like he did in his interaction with Mary. And he does this primarily through his word. See, as I've often said, Rocky Peak, that the word of God, scripture, the Bible, it's more than just ink on a page or words on a screen, but it's the voice of Jesus, the Messiah, speaking directly to us. Because it's the word that reveals and it's the word that shatters filters that we have unintentionally placed. And what we see through the account of the wedding at Cana that one of the key filters that we can all succumb to has to do with our desires, has to do with what we want Jesus to do. Now, Rocky Peak, please hear me clearly. Desiring something from Jesus, desiring to move, desiring to provide, desiring to rescue, desiring to act, wanting it, petitioning it, going to him in prayer, pleading with it, that is all good. He invites you as a loving father. He invites you as his sons and daughters to tell him what you want, to plead, to petition, to argue. That is good. But the temptation, in other words, the filter, is that when we want something and we begin to define the terms through which Jesus has to act. We want something and we begin to say, Jesus, this is what you will do. This is how you will do it. And this is when you will do it. And when we choose to act in that way, we have now placed a filter in which Jesus is no longer the Messiah, but we now are. And that filter does what all filters do. It shrinks how we view Jesus. And so what we need to do is we need the voice of Jesus, the true Messiah, to reveal and to shatter that and any other filter in how we see him. Because how we see him is directly gonna impact the second area of surrender. So your next villain is this. We need to surrender in how we trust the Messiah. We need to surrender in how we trust the Messiah just like he did to Mary. Jesus calls you and I to live in a deeper trust, a trust that is not placed in a outcome or an external circumstance, but a trust that is placed in, in Jesus himself and who he is. And again, let's be honest, this is difficult. This is a struggle because we want to trust based 
on an outcome. I want to trust based on knowing that things are eventually going to work out or to have a little bit of light at the end of the trundle. One of the struggles that we all face as Christ followers is that it is hard to trust Jesus when Jesus moves outside of what makes sense to us. It is hard to trust Jesus when we don't understand what he's doing, why he's doing, his timetable for it. And if that's you, if that's what you're experiencing right now, whether in the immediate or it's been a prolonged season, there is nothing wrong with you. This is a very real struggle. But what we see through this first sign that John is presenting to us is that this is in not only a struggle, but within that struggle, there is a key opportunity, again, to not only see the Messiah as he is, but to learn to trust in the power of Messiah, which is more than I can possibly imagine. When it comes to surrendering our trust, when it comes to surrendering control, this is an opportunity as we hear Jesus say to each and every one of us, look at me. What do you see? Focus on me because I'm right here. He's not asking us to trust an abstract image. He's not asking us to trust in a Messiah who is distant and gone. He is asking us to trust in a Messiah who is right here with us. There's going to be times in our lives when one of the most beautiful cries of our souls is, I don't know anything else right now, but I know Jesus and I know that he's here. Let me illustrate it this way, Rocky Peak. If you're a long time, if you've been a part of Rocky Peak for the last couple of years, then you probably remember that back in the summer of 2019, I had to take a multiple month leave of absence from my role here at Rocky Peak. It was a medical leave because of some health issues I had been struggling with. And I want to say something real quick, Rocky Peak, that still to this day, there are so many of you that when you see me, you ask me how I'm doing, you tell me that you're still praying for me, and I want to just tell you how much I appreciate that. Thank you, and sincerely, I'm doing much, much better. But if we go back to the summer of 2019, I had to step out because the struggle had become unmanageable. And it had been a significant struggle, not just for that season, but it had been a struggle for almost a decade, for over nine years. And when it became, got into that point, that was my lowest point, my prayers, my family's prayers, your prayers, Rocky, because so many of your prayers were for the Lord to move in an instant, miraculous way, for the Lord to immediately restore my body. I wanted that so much, Rocky Peak. And what I discovered was that was not God's will for my life. And I gotta be honest with you, I deeply wrestled with that. I remember at my lowest point, wrestling screaming, crying out to the Lord. I am so miserable in every way you can imagine being miserable. I feel so broken in every way you can imagine being broken. God, I feel like I've lost so much and you keep taking and taking and taking. How much more could I take? And I remember in those moments, Jesus patiently and calmly saying the same thing over and over again. Trust me. Trust me. 
trust me. And my response for many months was the same thing. No, I don't want to. This is too hard. And I remember there was a turning point. I was sitting in my car in the parking lot of Kaiser Woodland Hills and I just completely broke, sobbing, not sure of what to do. And again, I heard the Lord say, trust me. And finally I responded, okay, I surrender. And then I heard the Lord say something else. Now what do you see? And it was like my eyes were opened and I couldn't believe how I had missed this before. You. Jesus, I see you here now in, in this wreckage, in my pain, in my misery. I see you, you're here, but I don't see a small Jesus. I see a big Jesus. And I remember just feeling in my heart, Jesus, I surrender. You're all I have and you're all I need and I don't know where we're going. I don't know where the story is gonna end, but I see you and I'm gonna trust you. And Rocky Peak, it's still a journey. There have been some incredible ups and there are still some downs. I'm not allowed to eat donuts anymore and I really, really miss donuts. But it was in surrendering, it was in the Lord changing how I see and trust him that I experienced an abundant beauty. <laughs> it was that I experienced a new depth of the truth that surrender leads to transformation. I like how one of my heroes, Dallas Willard, puts it there in a note sheet. As a disciple of Jesus, I'm with him by choice and by grace, learning from him how to live in the kingdom of God. This is the crucial idea. That means we recall how to live within the range of God's effective will, his life flowing through mine. Another important way of putting this is to say that I'm learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were here. I am not necessarily learning to do everything he did, but I am learning how to do everything I do in the manner that he did all that he did. And so what does surrender lead us? To a transformation in which we resemble the Messiah himself, Jesus. And that's a beautiful thing. And so as we wrap things up, I just have one last question for you there in your note sheet. Rocky Peak, what is your next step of surrender? And I wanna challenge you in this way, that when it comes to answering this question, what your next step is, I wanna ask you to go before the Lord and let him lead you to an answer. And so as I often do, I wanna encourage you to carve out some intentional time in the next 24 hours in which you can sit unrushed and undisturbed and just read this passage that we covered. Read this first sign and reflect, think, write down what is Jesus saying to you through his word about what it means to surrender, 
about where, how he wants to lead you into the kingdom of God, about how you see him and how you trust him. Let Jesus, the Messiah, speak to you about what your next step is. Amen? Amen, Rocky Peak. Let's pray. Jesus, you are doing something new. You are doing something new as you lead us into your kingdom. As you lead us to experience more of your kingdom, more of who you are, more of what you've come to do. Jesus, you are doing something new as you lead us to experience more of your breath in our lungs, which leads us to regularly experience new life. And if we want to be a part of this new reality that the Messiah is creating that requires us to be a new person, a transformed person, and we can't get there on our own, we can only get there through you, and the path to you is surrender, is declaring with our words, with our hearts, with our soul, with our actions, with our thoughts, that Jesus is Messiah, and beautifully, I am not. And so Jesus, we surrender as individuals who have tried to do it on our own, who have tried to do it in a way that makes sense, we surrender as your church. We collectively surrender. Tell us how to see you through your word, through worship, through prayer, through other believers. Remind us of who you truly are. Jesus, lead us to a new area, a deeper trust, like Mary beautifully did, not necessarily in an outcome or in the when or in the how or in the if, but in you. And we will experience abundant life through it. Thank you for being here. Thank you for opening the eyes of our hearts to see you here now. And let us choose to listen and follow to the leadership of Jesus the Messiah. And we all said, amen. Amen, Rocky Peak.